Hello, this is your host, Jennifer Baker, and welcome to the Human Brain Project podcast, where we talk to the scientists and researchers that have dedicated their lives to solving the mysteries of the human brain. We discover the humans behind the science and find out how tomorrow's discoveries will be shaped. On today's episode, we're talking to Victor Yusa from the FHU in Marseille, and we'll be discussing his work in creating the virtual brain and how it can help tackle pathologies, in particular epilepsy. Let's start off, Victor, by asking, what are you working on at the moment? And tell us a bit about your current project. What I'm working on at the moment is an uh, elaboration of the type of virtual brain approach that we have developed over the last uh, 10 years. The virtual brain is a brain modeling approach in which we fuse data from individual subjects, individual patients, and build uh, brain models, computational brain models using these data, which allows us to actually personalize the brain models like a digital twin, making individualized predictions. And we, we have developed this over the past 10 years. And in the Human Brain Project, personalization was a big issue. This did not exist until now. And uh, we have recognized in the past two years that we have to go to much higher resolutions in order to make more meaningful statements. We have done this uh, in the context of epilepsy, where we have provided proof of concept, where we went to a factor 1,000 higher resolution. So now we are in the brain models for individual epilepsy patients. We are working on the level of millimeters today. And uh, this becomes uh, very reliable, providing us with confidence of uh, the degree of patient-specific predictions that we can make. Yeah? So, so this is one key element uh, at more technically uh, a, a technical challenge that we have um, taken on and that we are moving forward. Uh, the second more scientifically oriented challenge is how can we translate the type of approaches that we have developed into other diseases? or in brain function also, to understand how the brain works on the one hand side and uh, how it uh, stops work working when it's impacted by disease. So we'd like to push these approaches all the way to the limit to see how far can we go in other diseases. So that's what I was going to ask you about, sort of to explain to our audience uh, and, and lay people as well, what sort of applications the work might have and what sort of meaningful change might it mean, particularly for a patient with epilepsy? So in epilepsy, you have to recognize that it's actually a common disease. One percent of the human population has epilepsy at some point in his or her uh, lifetime. Um, third of these patients are pharmacoresistant. And for these patients, uh, there is no other hope for relief other than uh, surgery, surgical resection of the tissue in which the epileptic discharges, these are uh, high frequency electric discharges in the brain that occur and uh, render the brain dysfunctional. But uh, there is a location there. And one of the challenges that we have is to figure out where is the epileptogenic zone of uh, a particular patient. 
and to to figure this out this is difficult because it's uh, uh you have to infer it non-invasively as a first step trying uh, to look at the clinical symptoms, uh, measuring EG, uh, obtaining an MRI, so magneto resonance imaging in which we can actually visualize the structure, is a lesion in the brain. Yeah? From all this information, we put it together and we try to get a first impression of where is the epileptogenic zone. And I remind you, that's a surgical target for removal. And in a second step, what we do then is uh, that we... Uh, enter into the brain. So this is an invasive approach where we try to make recordings in the brain of the patient to get actually confirmation thereof. But very often this is still not certain. There is a surgery success rate of about 60% that has not changed over the past 30, 40 years, which means in other words, 40% and 40% of all the cases, we get it wrong. So we can do better. And this is where the digital twin approach can actually help. First is estimation, better estimation of where is the epileptogenic zone of the uh, patient, of this particular patient, number one. And number two, can we think of other approaches now that we have a digital twin model of a patient? So stimulation is, for instance, one of them that we are looking into. Brain stimulation, there are forms of diagnostic and therapeutic uh, brain stimulation that already are being used. So this we can explore with the digital twin, trying to find uh, new ways going forward of treating epilepsy. Well, I mean, obviously, the reducing the invasive uh, surgery is, is something that patients particularly want. Um, and it's obviously, is there any other applications, you know, digital twins and super personalized medicine seems to be a, a growing trend. I mean, is this a part of a, of a move where we see even the use of sort of, well, AI and these sorts of computer modeling to create individualized medicine? Do you think that is a, a growing trend in the health sector in general? It is definitely a growing trend in the health sector. Digital neuroscience or digital health is one of the priorities we have, particularly in Europe. Digital twin is a term that comes up more and more in this domain, not just in neuroscience, but also in uh, uh, medicine N notion the thinking that digital representations can help us to better understand a disease this is not new no? this uh, has been around for a well, uh, long time however introducing a personalized aspect that allows us to go into n equal one yeah so one single patient and render it specific for this particular patient. This is new, and the importance of has been recognized. Uh, we cannot make judgment calls or clinical decisions on the basis of knowledge that has been gathered on the level of uh, group statistics. It is always a decision that needs to be made for one particular patient. And especially in neuroscience, we get there into the challenge that uh, the brain is a multi-scale system. There are so many areas and scales that contribute from the molecular genetic scale through the cellular up to the microcircuit scale, all the way to the uh, whole brain scale. And even beyond that, human is typically embedded into a, a social environment. 
and their behavior plays a very important role. So we have a multi-scale system and something that can actually be demonstrated, there's now uh, the theoretician speaking out of me, that uh, every multi-scale system has multiple, uh, has so-called uh, degeneracies, which means different um, mechanisms can lead to the same type of behavior. This is important, actually, in case of uh, impact, like a perturbation or a disease, uh, the brain can actually adapt its um, uh, mechanisms in order to go into a different realization using a different combination of mechanisms to regenerate the same type of healthy behavior. So we have this type of plasticity. But for this, is, these multiple scales, these multiple options must exist. So this contributes a lot to what we call brain resilience. Then from the other perspective, as a researcher, this causes big problems for us because when you have one behavior or certain symptoms uh, in case of dysfunction, then it is very difficult to identify what the underlying causes are. So uh, this degeneracy, or in the case of the brain, neurodegeneracy is important on the one hand side. On the other hand, it causes non-identifiability uh, which is a hindering block for the scientist trying to identify what is happening behind that. These two elements go hand in hand together in brain sciences. And this is what makes it very difficult to use digital twins in real world applications when you want to apply it to, to real patients in the real world, even in the clinic. Well, another consideration that has come up in the course of these podcasts is the question of bioethics or neuroethics. Now, I know the uh, HBP has a framework regarding that. How do you view that? I mean, what's what's the level to which you must be constantly aware of ethical questions, particularly when we're talking about new procedures or computer-aided procedures? Generally, so uh, with regard to new procedures, uh, computer-aided pro procedures, the questions are not uh, novel with regard to uh, the use of uh, tools in the applications uh, in medicine. So there, there are standard protocols that do exist and that need to be authorized when you go into clinical studies or when you uh, go all the way to a clinical trial. So they're using computer-aided tools as methods on new approaches to deal with data or to actually inform the cl clinical decision-making of a clinician. Uh, there I'm less worried about um, uh, since the procedures are in play, uh, place. Something that is kind of exciting though is or interesting because it is new is uh, in the context of digital twin the following. We have a digital twin is a representation of knowledge. Um, we have uh, anatomical knowledge, um, physiological knowledge. We just put it into mathematical form and then we call it uh, a model. Yeah? This is a form of knowledge. We can link it to methods and tools. And then we have a very well-formulated ecosystem in digital form. Uh, next step is uh, that we personalize it. So we bring in individual brain data or maybe even more physiological behavioral data uh, of a particular patient. 
So we link it to existing knowledge uh, and build what we call a digital twin. The interesting ethical aspects that is new is actually in terms of data protection um, and ethical regulations, uh, this applied usually typically to protect the identity and the safety of a particular patient. So we are actually protecting the information that is in the data. By linking a patient's individual data to models, we can actually make predictions about what is not in the data, but still very patient-specific. Th think this through a little bit. Yeah? So we have data coming from a patient, and we infer information about the a patient that goes actually beyond what is in the data. This is the whole point of building a digital twin. For instance, rendering, uh, making predictions about the disease evolution of a particular patient, um, identifying uh, brain areas that are potentially diseased in the brain of a patient, but that are not accessible by the measuring devices. Uh, so we have to make this digital inference of what is going on in these areas. So this is also philosophically very exciting. How far can we actually go with that? How far should we go? Yeah? Yeah. These are the questions that the ethicists is posing in the context of digital twin. And tell me a bit more about how the uh, Human Brain Project has fitted into your work. Is it about collaboration? What are the, what are the bonuses you're seeing? The Human Brain Project was essential uh, for the work in my laboratory when we joined the Human Brain Project. Uh, that was actually uh, one year after its beginnings. Uh, the Human Brain Project started in 2013. We joined the efforts in 2014. And uh, the it, it was very inspiring uh, to uh, discover the potential interactions across many different disciplines uh, for my lab. At that time, our approach in terms of virtual brain modeling already existed. What has not existed were essentially the potential capacities of collaborations and access to data and tools that became uh, possible and accessible in the context of the Human Brain Project. It, it was not all there as it is there today, but it was in development, it was on the roadmap. And uh, what we tried to do is to render our contributions uh, meaningful with a societal impact. So we took full advantage of the uh, environment of HPP and uh, turned our questions into uh, clinical applications, which was one of the missions of HPP. And we decided that we can contribute there. And everything that I described in terms of personalization in 2014, absolutely nothing existed thereof. Absolutely, literally nothing. And uh, this is the type of work that we have developed over the past seven, eight years. And there we have chosen epilepsy as a uh, locomotive, as a driver of our science. We could have chosen others, but in this case, it was a personal environment in, in, in which I was here in Marseille because we have a very strong uh, epilepsy group here. But important was uh, two elements, essentially, the capacity to coordinate on the one hand side, understanding the language and the culture of the other collaborators in the Human Brain Project, and then our adaptation of our path forward um, to the new context provided by the Human Brain Project and essentially taking advantage of these uh, collaborations. So it's, 
it's not a one-way process it's a back and forth yeah and this took us uh, a few years to be able to understand each other so it's a development of a shared culture and language of working together well i can hear from your voice how enthusiastic you are about that um tell me in terms of your career on a more personal level did you always expect to end up working in this area? Tell me about the path that you took from maybe when you decided what to study or even from childhood, whether there was someone in your background or family or, or, or some context that, that made you end up in this particularly fascinating area. My childhood, I initially actually wanted to study Latin and philosophy until many people convinced me actually that this may not be uh, the best way forward in order to uh, earn your salary and the money. Well, there are philosophical elements in what you do, I'm sure. <laughs> hey, exactly. Now we are talking. Yeah? yeah. So I tried. I actually started studying physics. Yeah. And uh, the physics was motivated a lot by philosophical questions. First, how does the universe work on the one hand side, and how does the brain work? Initially, started looking into the universe, uh, looked into elementary particle physics. I was in Manchester. I did my master's there. I was in Geneva at CERN. Um, and I, I liked the work a lot, but I was, uh, as I grew older, and uh, we're talking early 20s, I got more and more interested in the brain. So I decided actually to go back to Germany, actually to the city where I grew up in Stuttgart, uh, because there was... Uh, one pioneer in the field of uh, self-organization. So that was uh, Hermann Haken, a pioneer in the field. And uh, he had also a strong interest in um, philosophy, but also in neurosciences. So I asked him if I can work with him to develop a theory of the brain based on self-organization. And uh, he accepted me as a student. We uh, developed a project together. I did my PhD in there. Uh, and from that moment on, so since the mid 90s, I was working in neuroscience, but as a theoretical physicist yeah, with a philosophical drive. So that is my personal story. The, the dr philosophical drive was always the motivation. How can we have something like consciousness or thought emerge from the interactions of a system that is composed of individual elements that interact together in form of a network. How does that work? Well, if you get the answer to that, I'm sure we'll all be delighted to hear if we ever get a definitive answer on what is consciousness. I know so many of your colleagues are working on it as well. Well, what would you say, if, would you give yourself any advice if you look back? I mean, it sounds like you were very fortunate. You've got this great uh, mentor, pioneer. Um, is there anything you would say to your younger self when you were starting out in your career? Do exactly what you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> no mistakes. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, when I'm looking back, I have always been passionate about the things that I have done. And I think I've not reg uh, regretted a single time. Not a single time. And sometimes there were possibilities to sidetrack some activities Sometimes one can be seduced by uh, money or glory or other things. But uh, I, I think I, I, I've been always 
faithful to the type of questions where we started off, where I started off in the beginning uh, in the laboratory of Hermann Haken. Uh, that's actually why I went in the first place to Hermann Haken, trying to understand how thought can emerge from matter, specifically from a network, specifically from dynamics. Uh, so dynamics are the, the processes, not just the states, not brain states, but uh, processes that arise from a network. This was my interest 35 years ago, and I think it's true that this is still my major interest, and for that I'm actually very happy. And if I had to give advice to the young generation, if uh, you want to take a scientific path of happiness, that may be worth considering that you maintain the path in which your original passion has been. It can change, but make sure that it continues to be driven by passion. That's a uh, quite common advice we hear from people in your position. So I'm pleased then that we have a, an echo and a thread running through all these podcasts. We've looked back. Let's look a little bit to the future before we wrap up. Uh, what are the next steps for you? Where would you like to see the, the state of the art of the science and research going? Uh, what does success look like? Is there some goal in the future that you feel that you or that your colleagues or that those in the project could be working towards? I wish to address it on the level of neuroscience culture. Something that is changing, especially when looking back in my uh, past or in the past of everyone, uh, of all of us in uh, neuroscience is uh, the way of collaboration. And the Human Brain Project has one key deliverable, and that is uh, the research infrastructure called eBrains, of where we, which I'm serving as the chief science officer. The, uh, I talked about collaboration, and we also talked about the passion of uh, the adaptation that we need to have when we are collaborating with other partners. Um, this is being formalized in a form of collaboration within the digital neuroscience uh, research infrastructure eBrains. This requires, however, a cultural change. And what the way we have worked so far is either within the laboratory or collaborating with other labs. Um, so building a physical network uh, where we visit each other, exchange, brainstorm. This needs to continue, of course. But on top of this, there is a new level of organization, which is provided by a digital ecosystem in which the data, the models, the tools are rendered interoperable. And this makes it significantly easier to make all these links that you had to before the hard-working fashion to, to generate from zero and just to get the formatting right in order to exchange the data set between two labs took potentially months. Yeah? And uh, this is being rendered significantly simpler. And in this digital ecosystem, you, you enter typically having a certain background in a domain, in my case, applied math, theoretical physics, but you have to deal with so many other domains. So you have to understand the scientific thinking uh, behind the tools, the language. This is difficult and it requires a different form of reading the uh, uh, papers from the different domain. It requires a different form of 
thinking and collaborating together in this ecosystem. This is new. This is qualitatively new. Yeah, This is not just an expansion. It's really qualitatively new. We are not there yet. This is where we want to go. And I hope it will happen. I hope it will uh, become a new form of uh, uh, collaboration, neuroscientific collaboration that exists in other forms of sciences, such as elementary particle physics. But here in neuroscience, it is new. I think many added values and advantages that come, come out of this. And I will push it forward as much as I can. Well, I'm guessing this is a, a lot of this is also around the idea of comparable data and data sets that are actually really directly comparable in, in a sense um, that we see in, in, in other totally different disciplines, but where, where there's a, a need to expand the knowledge. Uh, it goes way beyond that, and not just rendering data comparable, uh, rendering data complementary within a larger framework such that they can inform other pieces of knowledge that are not part of the data, such as a model, for instance. Yeah. Okay. And uh, which means you can actually uh, think of a mosaic that you start filling up with uh, data of many different heterogeneous uh, resources, in vivo and ex vivo. How can you get these things uh, together? It's not only comparable, it's it's uh, making them interoperable, uh, trying to be able to inform the same question that you are asking, but coming from many different uh, areas. And you have to be able to formulate the model. We talked about multi-scale. Yeah? So uh, how does molecular motion and kinematics inform physiology? And that then goes to psychiatric diseases. Think that through. That is extremely difficult, and it's not just putting data together. It's really uh, changing concepts such that data and models can be put together. This is what I meant by developing a new culture, yeah? and uh, th that's why it's qualitatively different. Well, it sounds like uh, quite a huge challenge. I mean, do you have a timescale in mind? What are the next steps on a, on a very practical level? So we have demonstrated our capacity to build such a research infrastructure. eBrains exists today. We need to build convincing proof of concept, building individual scientific workflows that are actually able to answer questions that were not possible to answer before. This is ongoing. Their epilepsy, for instance, is one of the prime examples where we go with the workflows that are being supported by eBrains, where we go all the way to clinical trial. Yeah, so some of these workflows are uh, being trialed today with 400 epilepsy patients. I'm, I'm talking about the personalization workflows. For the next 10 years, researchers have to be able to come from the outside and not be overwhelmed with all the possibilities but need to be able to find an entry to build his or her scientific workflows that are customized to their own individual questions. This is a very important. So it's a form of uh, operation. And there, over the next 10 years, uh, in, from the infrastructure perspective, I want to make it uh, becoming a part of the neuroscience culture that we have in sciences in Europe and worldwide. In order to uh, 
be able to make this real, we have to go um, beyond what science can deliver today. So we have to uh, address the big questions in uh, neuroscience and be able to carry it over into diseases that have been inaccessible today. Example, psychiatry. There are quite a number of examples where uh, neuroscience, in particular neuroimaging, has very little contributed so far. And there is a, a huge demand for help, actually. And I believe that some of the techniques we have developed in HPP and in eBrains, in particular with regard to digital twins, will be able to help in the future. Well, indeed, we've um, had some conversations with your colleagues in our other podcasts, so I urge our audience to go and have a listen to some of those where we delve specifically into some of these topics in more depth. Victor, before I let you go, let's uh, just on a personal level, tell me, what do you do when you're not working? What do you do for fun? Do you read? Do you, what are your interests outside of these challenges that you've really set yourself from a work perspective? I have a family with uh, two young boys, 12 and 14 years old, so... We're spending a lot of time together and some of the activities that we do here in the south of France, in the Provence, we go out a lot and uh, out in the hills or mountains, actually, um, and in this in different forms. Yeah? Running is something that, uh, so mountain running, mountain biking, and something that I do by myself, then I often go on a motorized vehicle, on a scrambler, exploring the mountain ranges. Yeah? Yeah. So going out in the mountains, yeah, with or without family. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. And you, I'm sure you do need the downtime uh, in order to take on what sounds like a huge challenge. Thank you very much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Human Brain Project podcast. If so, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And most importantly, share with a friend. To learn more about the Human Brain Project, please visit humanbrainproject.eu and be sure to check out other episodes in this series packed with fascinating insight into how our minds work. Thanks for listening.